What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. section on sovereignty, Paul's main focus is on the nation of Israel. And in chapter 9, Paul shared about Israel's past election, and we saw God's sovereignty and his choices. And he made many choices throughout the nation of Israel, but Paul's main focus was God's choice to not only offer salvation to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And in chapter 10, Paul shared about Israel's present rejection, uh, and he revealed man's responsibility to choose whether to accept salvation or to reject it. Uh, And now all of that, what we've seen really from chapter one on, but it's all been leading to a question now that many Jews and Gentiles would ask, and that is, is God done with Israel? You know, they've rejected him, they've rejected Christ, is, you know, is he now through with them? Well, here in chapter 11, Paul is going to answer that question as he shares about Israel's future reception. Actually, there's going to be six important questions concerning Israel that Paul is going to answer for us in this chapter. Has God rejected Israel? Are there Jews coming to Jesus for salvation? What has happened to the Jews that have rejected Jesus? Why has God set aside the nation of Israel? Will there be a future restoration of Israel? And why would God do all of this? So in this chapter, we're going to see some very important truths about God's future plan for the nation of Israel. Now, it wasn't just the Israelites who'd be interested in this answer. Also, the Gentiles would want to know the answer to this question as well, because how God deals with the nation of Israel reveals to us things about God and his character and how he works. And so how he treats them would be important to anybody, not just those who are Jews. Now, for those of us who are Gentile believers, you know, we constantly are reading the Bible. And what are we seeing? We're seeing how God has dealt with the nation of Israel in the past. The majority of Scripture is God dealing with the nation of Israel, all the Old Testament, a lot of the New Testament. And so as we read that, we are seeing how God has dealt with the nation of Israel in the past, and we're taking what we see and learning about God, learning about His character, learning about how He deals with different individuals. And we even go as far as to say, hey, you know what? We come to verses like Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. And we read this and we realize it's specifically towards the nation of Israel, yet it reveals to us a principle about God. And so we grab hold of that for ourselves and we let that encourage us and we let that speak to us. And so, you know, 
these things are important. How God de uh, dealt with Israel in the past is important for us to learn about God, but also how he's going to deal with them in the future. And if we really concluded and we thought, you know what? God is done with the nation of Israel. He has nothing to do with them anymore. That's important to understand if you really thought that because it would then start to impact the way that you see God. Well, wait a second. If God's done with Israel, that means... One, he's abandoned them. And two, the promises that he made, not all of them have been fulfilled. And so they're not going to be fulfilled. And so God's not going to keep his promises to them. And so, you know, if we conclude this, it brings to us some conclusions about God that would be something that would impact how we see him when we start wondering, you know, well, is God ever going to be done with me? Is God not going to fulfill his promises to me? And so you can see, not only were the Israelites wanting to know the answer to this, the, the Gentile Christians were wanting to know because, hey, if God's left Israel, that says something about him. And now I'm not so secure in, in my own relationship with him. And so as we look at this, we're going to see God's future plan. And for us as believers, it's going to bring comfort. It's going to bring encouragement because we're going to see God's not done. He will fulfill his promises. And hopefully that will uh, encourage you in your own relationship with the Lord. And so Paul's going to start with answering, and really this whole chapter is going to kind of deal with this answer, but he's going to start making it real clear at the very beginning in verse 1, has God rejected Israel? Let's see Paul's answer. Romans 11 verse 1 says this, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I am also, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul starts with this question that he knew his readers were asking. The, the Jews were asking it. The Gentiles were asking it. Has God cast away his people? The Greek word here translated cast away means to reject, refuse, repel, or cast away from oneself. And so Paul's question is, has God rejected, refused, repelled, or cast away from himself the nation of Israel? His emphatic answer is certainly not. Paul wants to make very clear to us, God is not through with the nation of Israel. Now, this is important for us because it reveals something important about God, but it also is important because it impacts our view of the nation of Israel. You see, people who have believed that God is done with Israel have often adopted an anti-Israel mindset. And it's led to some Christians to believe an unbiblical belief called replacement theology. Replacement theology basically teaches that, you know, the church has replaced Israel. And so that all the promises that God has made to Israel that have not been fulfilled yet, that God is going to fulfill them through the church and not through Israel. Because they don't want to say that when they say, well, God's done with Israel, they don't want to also conclude God's not a promise keeper. Because if God's done with Israel, then there's still promises to be kept and those promises won't be kept. So they say, well, well, he'll keep his promise, just not to Israel. Instead, he's going to do it through the church. Uh, and, you know, this is not something that the Bible teaches at all. Uh, it really came about because of the state of the nation of Israel before 1948. Remember, they were scattered. They didn't have a homeland for, you know, hundreds and actually thousands of years. They're, they have nothing. And so as, as Bible scholars are looking at these promises, they're thinking, 
how in the world can God literally fulfill these things because Israel's not even a nation? I mean, we must miss something. Maybe God didn't mean that he was literally going to fulfill this through Israel. Maybe he meant he was going to fulfill it through the church. And so because of what they saw among the nation of Israel, they've come to these conclusions, well, uh, I just can't see how God could do that. And so they came up with this replacement theology. Why? Because they felt God was done with Israel, which he isn't. But on May 14th, 1948, something amazing happened. Israel became a nation. You know, May 14th, 2018, something amazing happened. If you follow the news, America put their capital in Jerusalem, making a clear statement, Jerusalem is the true capital of Israel. And they picked this date for a reason, because that's the same date that 70 years ago they became a nation. And they want to, you know, this is a, a very important time in Israel's history. But in 1948, when that happened, all of a sudden, many of these scholars who are buying into replacement theology say, wait a second. God does have a literal fulfillment of this. Look at, he brought Israel together as a nation. So, you know, a lot of people kind of abandon this belief system because they realize, well, wait, there is a difference between the church and Israel and God's promises to Israel versus God's promises to the church. They're not one. Uh, and so this is something very important for us to understand, especially as we look at Bible prophecy. If you don't distinguish between the church and Israel, it's going to really skew your Bible prophecy and your view of the end times because you're going to start to conclude that these things that God is specifically saying for Israel are actually for the church when that's not the case at all. And so what we see here uh, is something very important that God has not done with Israel. And the first evidence that Paul wants to give for that, okay, well, that's nice for you to say that, Paul, but why don't you try to prove that reality to us? And he says, well, you know what? The first evidence is myself. I also am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. Paul's saying, hey, God did not reject completely the nation of Israel because guess what? I am an Israelite and he hasn't rejected me. You know, I've come to faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul's point is not just about the fact that he's an Israelite and that he's saved, but it's also the manner in which he was saved. And we looked at this in the book of Acts. I mean, Paul was one of the most pro-Judaism, anti-Christianity, anti-Jesus people that ever existed. I mean, he killed Christians because he wanted to destroy Christianity because he was pro what he thought was, you know, he was pro-Judaism and thought, you know, this was going to be a problem. And so here's the man who's like, I completely reject Jesus. I'm totally for Judaism, which is the nation of Israel at that time. That was the majority of people with that sentiment. Paul's saying, I used to be one of you, but God in his divine mercy miraculously met me on the road to Damascus and I met Jesus Christ and my life was transformed and I was saved. And so it's not just a matter of that he's a Jew that's saved, but also the way in which God took someone who was so against Christ and was able to bring him to a saving faith in Christ. And so Paul says, has God cast away his people Israel? Certainly not, because look at what he's done in my own life. If God was willing to reveal himself to me and save me, a man who rejected Jesus and killed people for believing in Jesus, surely he can still reach other Jews who are like me, who have rejected Jesus. So the first important thing that Paul shares with us concerning Israel is God has not rejected Israel and Paul's salvation is evidence of that. God is able to work in hard-hearted Jews. He did it in Paul. He can do it again in the nation 
of Israel. So God's not done with them. But Paul realizes some of the people, you know, his life wouldn't be the evidence that they would want. So it's going to take another evidence and bring it to them. Something that God revealed to the prophet Elijah that's very important for us to understand as well, which he shares with us in verses 2 through 6. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleaded with God against Israel saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But it is of works, it's no longer grace. Otherwise, works is no longer works. If someone didn't get what Paul was saying in his first question here in verse 1, he just emphatically states it. If you missed my point, let me tell you here, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. You know, whenever an author repeats something, you know, twice, especially within two verses, he's wanting us to not miss this point. He's wanting to make it real clear. Hey, Don't miss this. God hasn't cast away his people. He has not rejected Israel. And to prove it this time, Paul takes them back to their own scriptures. Remember, the people he's really focusing on are the the Jews. And so, hey, in your own text that you would hold to, remember what God said in 1 Kings when, you know, Elisha, or Elijah, sorry, uh, was there. And Elijah just had this great battle with the prophets of Baal. And then King Jezebel comes to kill him. And, you know, he's running for his life. He's out in the wilderness. And, you know, he thought that he was the only Israelite left who followed Jesus. He cried out, Lord, they have killed your prophet, torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Look at the state of Israel, God. I mean, look what they've done. I'm the only one left who still worships you. I'm the only one left who still follows you. That's where Elijah was. That's what he thought. It's just me. But notice what God reveals to Elijah. He says, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You know, I, Elijah was convinced, you know, God has cast off the nation of Israel. I'm just it, Lord. I'm the only one left. It's just you and me. And God says, no, that's not true. I have a remnant, Elijah. I still got 7,000 men who have not gone into idol worship, who are still following me. It's not just you. And so Paul says, even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. So Paul says, just like in the time of Elijah, God had that remnant of 7,000 men that still followed him. In this time right where Paul is speaking, there's still a remnant of people that are Jews that believe in Jesus Christ and are faithful to him. So Paul wants them to understand that God is not done with them. Actually, not all the Jews have rejected Jesus. God has a remnant of Jews that have accepted Jesus, and Paul is a part of that remnant. You see, throughout Jewish history, God has always had a remnant of Israel faithful to him, and often he used that small remnant to draw the nation back to worshiping him because they had, you know, were very prone to worship idols. And right now in 2018, there's also a remnant of Israelites faithful to God who actually believe 
in Jesus Christ. We call them Messianic Jews because they actually believe that Jesus is their Messiah. It's a small portion. It's just a remnant, but they exist today. But something that Paul wants us to understand about the remnant of his time and the remnant of our time is this. It is according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But it's of works. It is no longer grace. Otherwise, works is no longer work. Now, remember, we've seen so often the Israelites feel, I will be righteous. I will get saved because of the works that I do, the works of the law. That's what makes me righteous before God. And so Paul wants them to understand that little remnant right now that is saved, understand they're not saved the way that you think they would be. You think, oh, oh, that remnant saved because they worked way better than us. They kept the law way better than us. That's why they're saved. Paul says, no, no, no. That remnant is not saved by works. They're saved by grace and grace alone. Grace is receiving something you didn't deserve and works is receiving something that you earned. So Paul says you've got to be one or the other. It can't be both. So it's either by grace or it's by works. Well, it's definitely not by works. They only receive salvation because of their faith in Jesus. That's how it worked for the remnant in Paul's day and all future Jews that come to salvation. It's the same thing. They're saved just like we are, by grace through faith. The second important thing that Paul shares with us concerning Israel is this. God has a remnant of Jews who are saved by grace through faith in Jesus, not by the works of the law. So if God has a remnant of Israelites that have accepted Jesus and are faithful to him, it leads to the next question that many would ask. Okay, but what has happened to the remainder? If it's just a small remnant that have believed in Jesus, what has happened to the remainder of the Jews who have rejected Jesus? They're not a part of that remnant. Well, Paul's going to answer that question next. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so they do not see and bow down their back always. So Paul tells us the nation of Israel as a whole has not obtained what it seeks. Well, what is it that they're seeking? Well, they're seeking to become righteous before God. The problem is they're seeking it the wrong way. That's what we've been seeing so far in the book of Romans. They're trying to get it through the works of the law. So they're seeking righteousness, but they're not obtaining righteousness because they've sought it in the wrong way. So Israel as a whole didn't obtain righteousness because righteousness only comes through faith in Jesus. And to this day, Israelites are still trying to be righteous through the works of the law, and they're not obtaining what they seek. So Paul says, hey, the majority that have rejected, that are not a part of that remnant that have put their faith in Jesus, you know, they haven't obtained righteousness. They haven't obtained what they seek. But the elect have obtained it, but the rest of the Jews were blinded. Now, the Bible, when it speaks of the elect, refers to different groups. Here, actually, in the context, is speaking specifically of those Israelites who have obtained righteousness because they have placed their faith in Christ. Uh, So he's kind of comparing the two. You have that remnant who has believed versus the majority who hasn't. Uh, So the remnant have obtained it, but notice what happened to the rest of them. It says that they were blinded, blinded by God. Since they rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah, 
He came. They should have been completely aware of it. I mean, there's 315 Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. It should have been so obvious to them, but they were hardened and they wouldn't believe in him and they rejected him. And as a consequence to that, God has chosen to blind the nation of Israel so that now, you know, they're not really even able to understand and see what they could have saw back when Jesus first came. And this would have been very hard for a Jew to hear, that God would bring this kind of judgment against them. And so once again, Paul takes them to their Old Testament scriptures and tells them, hey, this was something that was forewarned. God told you this was coming, uh, and you should be aware of it. Verses 8 through 10. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so they do not see and bow down their backs always. Paul is quoting two Old Testament passages, Isaiah 29 and Psalm 69, with both forewarn the same thing. God is going to bring the nation of Israel blindness. They are not going to be able to see. Why? Because of their rejection of Jesus. They brought it onto themselves. This is a judgment because of their rejection of Jesus. And now God has brought a blindness to the nation of Israel. And so instead of trying to help them see Jesus, God has said, you know what, for this time right now, I'm going to keep you blind. You've chosen to reject him, and I'm going to allow you just to continue down that path. But God has chosen to be gracious to the remnant who he's opened their eyes to see, and they have come to the truth of who Jesus is and have accepted him. So the third important thing that Paul shares with us concerning Israel is the Jews that have rejected Jesus have been blinded by God as a judgment for their unbelief. Now, after hearing this, the question that would come up is, why has God done this? Why has God set aside the nation of Israel in this particular way with blindness? And Paul's going to answer that next in verses 11 and 12. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Well, Paul just speaks of the blindness of Israel, and so there'd be this conclusion of, well, they must be without hope then. I mean, you know, so they've fallen and they're never going to you know, have any hope, and Paul wants to correct that thinking. He starts off asking another question, have the Israelites stumbled that they should fall? Have the majority of Israelites fallen so bad that God is now done with them? There's no hope for them at all. Once again, Paul has an emphatic answer. Certainly not. Paul has shown that God is still working through the remnants of Israel, but he also wants to make clear that the sinning majority is not lost forever. The Jews have stumbled, they have fallen, but it's not a permanent thing. It's not something that they can't recover from. It's not something that God won't still work through. But notice what God has done already. Through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So we've seen their rejection of Christ, and Paul wants us to realize, look at what God has already done through that rejection. We've already seen in Romans that God works all things together for good. 
Well, here's something that's amazing that God has done with a rejection of Jesus by the nation of Israel. We see two things. The first thing is that God has opened the door for more Gentiles to hear the gospel and get saved. You know, throughout the book of Acts, as you see, where did the gospel always go first? It went to the Jews first, and what they do, for the most part, rejected it, and then it goes to the Gentiles. And there's this reality that because of their rejection, the gospel has actually gone forth more to the Gentiles. We have benefited from the fact that they have rejected Christ. And so, hey, we're going to you. Oh, you don't want it? Well, fine. We'll take it to the Gentiles. And all of a sudden, they do want it, and they're open to it, and they're receiving it. And so, you know, this is something that God has done. Yeah, they've fallen and they've rejected Christ. But in the midst of that, I've used that to reach more Gentiles with the gospel and salvation. So that's the first wonderful thing that God has done with the rejection of the Jews. But he's also done something else quite interesting as well. As God saves Gentiles, he is provoking Jews to jealousy. And this is uh, jealousy in a good way, in the sense of provoking them to want Jesus. As he saves Gentiles and Jews see what God has given to the Gentiles and how he's working in the Gentiles and the spirit that dwells within the Gentiles, all of a sudden that provokes them to jealousy of, I want what the Gentiles have, and it leads them back to the one that they've rejected, Jesus. And so God is doing two things. First, he's helping Gentiles get saved, but he's also in that using Gentile salvation to help the Jews come to Christ. Hey, it's provoking them to see what Jesus can do in a life and that he truly is the Messiah and that you need to put your trust in him. But the thing that we need to understand as Gentile Christians is in order for the Jews to be provoked to jealousy, it's going to be seen through our life. And this is the thing that's so frustrating when you look at church history among how Gentile Christians have treated the Jews. And for a lot of the history of the church, we have not treated them well. We are not doing stuff that would promote them to jealousy. We are not treating them the way that God would want us to, even as God promises, you know, to Abraham, for those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. You know, there should be a mindset from us of we want to be a light to the Jews. We want them to see Jesus so that they would be jealous of him, want him, desire him. But sadly, so often the mindset through church history of Christians to Jews is, oh, you killed Jesus. We don't like you. God's done with you. And because of that, we've treated them very bad. And they look at Christians, and I've been in Israel, and a lot of them, they don't like Christians. They think, well, if that's, you know, they're not drawn to Jesus, not because of anything that Jesus did, but because Christians, sadly, have not portrayed who Jesus is clearly to them. And if we would, it would be something that could draw them to jealousy with the goal of them now coming to Jesus Christ because they see what he can do. Henry Morris said this, it's a matter for profound regret that just as Israel refused to accept this salvation when it was offered to them, so the Gentiles have all too often refused to make Israel envious Instead of showing to God's ancient people the attractiveness of the Christian way, Christians have characteristically treated the Jews with hatred, prejudice, persecution, malice, and all uncharitableness. Christians should not take this passage calmly. We need to be a light to Jews. We need to be a light to the whole world. You know, we're told that, but so often it's like, well, I'll just be a light to other Gentiles, but I'm going to treat the Jews differently. No, God in his plan of Their fall, bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, also wants us as Gentiles to provoke the Jews so they could see what they're missing in Jesus. Paul goes on to say in verse 12, 
Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more is their fullness? You know, if Israel's fall, if their rejection of Jesus brought so many blessings to the world, especially us as Gentiles, it brought us salvation. I mean, how much more can God do in their fullness when they come to a place where they receive Christ? I mean, if he can do this through their rejection of Jesus, imagine what Paul is saying is what he can do if they come to Jesus, what he could do through this nation in that because of God's amazing work. So the fourth important thing that Paul shares with us concerning Israel is the reason God set aside the nation of Israel was to give the Gentiles a greater opportunity to be saved and in doing so provoke the Jews to want salvation in Christ as well. Well, this leads to the next question that Paul will answer. Okay, will there be a future restoration of Israel? You're kind of, you know, you're saying they're blind, but now you're saying, well, you know, the Gentiles can provoke them to jealousy and they could want Jesus. And so are they ever going to accept him? Are they ever as a nation going to come back and, and accept Jesus as the Messiah? Well, Paul's going to answer that question. He's going to reveal several things to do it. And so we're going to see a lot of important things that he shares here, ultimately answering the question of, in the future, will the Jews come to a believing faith in Jesus? He starts by sharing this. For I speak to you Gentiles, and as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are of my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Paul's main ministry was to the Gentiles. And we just kind of see, you know, we would think that the main ministry of Peter, since he was a fisherman, would be to the Gentiles. And Paul, since he was, you know, the, the Pharisee and was so uh, knowledgeable of Judaism that God would have sent him to the Jews. But that's not how God did it. God says, you know, no, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. But Paul has always had this burden for Jews, but he's sharing to the Gentiles, those that he you know, has a ministry to, that he's you know, seeking to reach. He says, you know what? Hey, I want my ministry to you guys to be magnified. Well, why? Because of what I just shared. If the Gentiles' ministry is magnified, they can provoke Jews to jealousy so that Jews will come to Jesus. So the more that the Gentiles are getting saved and the more that God is working in them, it will hopefully lead more Jews to salvation. And so Paul's saying, I want this ministry of the Gentiles to magnify because I want to see more Jewish people come to know Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to make a statement similar to what he just did. For if they're being cast away, is the reconciliation of the world what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? You know, Paul's confidence, if the Jews will accept Jesus, they'll be saved. They'll go from death to life, just like anyone else will. He's, he's confident of that, but he's also confident God is not done with the nation of Israel. Israel's fall is temporary. God still has a plan for them. And he's going to now share two illustrations to help show why he's confident of this. He says in verse 16, for if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. The first illustration that Paul takes here is from Numbers chapter 15, where God tells the nation of Israel to take the first of the, the ground meal coming from their harvest, make a cake out of it, and offer it to the Lord. And so as they make that cake, there's a big lump there, and you know they make the cake, and, and they offer it up to the Lord. Paul's second illustration is of a tree that first starts growing from the roots, and then the branches come 
next. Now, in both of these illustrations, the principle is the same. What is first contributes to uh, its character to what is then connected to it. With a tree, the root obviously comes first, and then the branches are connected to it. So it's the root and the character of the root that determines what kind of branches and what kind of fruit that they produce. So whatever the root is, the branches ultimately will be as well. So the root that comes first, if it's holy, then the branches that come second will be holy as well. With the cake that was presented to the Lord, the the lump that was there taken from the harvest and made into a cake, it was holy, was uh, said to be set apart for the Lord. And ultimately, as they did that, they were saying, now the rest of the harvest is also. The first fruit, this first bit that we give to you, God, this is saying, here, our whole harvest is set apart to you, but in symbolic, we're going to give you this first fruit. This part is holy and set apart to demonstrate that the rest is as well. So what Paul is ultimately wanting us to see is the lump and, or the root, sorry, uh, and the first fruit represent the patriarchs. Uh, Abraham, most specifically, uh, Isaac, Jacob, those who came first in the Jewish faith, the lump and the branches, they represent the nation of Israel that are the descendants of the patriarch. And this is what something that Paul wants us to understand. If Abraham, and we've been looking at him in the book of Genesis, he came first and he was holy. This isn't speaking of holy as in, oh man, he was such a righteous person. We saw in his life he's not righteous at all. Holy in the sense of set apart for God. God set apart Abraham for his work and made him a great nation. So if Abraham was holy, set apart for God, guess what Paul's saying? His descendants are also set apart and holy for God as well. And this is what we saw with the the promise. The promise wasn't just to Abraham. It was to Abraham and your descendants, which went to Isaac and then Jacob and then beyond. And so Paul's bringing us back to the promise of God for the nation of Israel. And he's using these illustrations to help understand, well, hey, wait a second. God, when he established this covenant with Abraham, he's not done. He made a promise not only to Abraham, but his descendants, and he will fulfill that promise. He gives us another illustration to make another point in verses 17 through 24. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say, then branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you, goodness. And if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For you were cut off of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and you were grafted in contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree. How much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted in to their own olive tree? So Paul gave this illustration of the lump and, you know, uh, the harvest and the tree and the branches. And now he's taking that tree and branches and he's expounding upon it, but he gives us a very specific 
tree. Not just any tree, but he speaks of an olive tree. Here's a picture of an olive tree that I took when I was in Israel in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's full of art of olive trees. That's where Jesus prayed. Um, and throughout the Bible, the olive tree represents the nation of Israel. And that's why Paul specifically chooses the olive tree because it's a representation of the nation of Israel. And now he goes into this illustration using the olive tree to help us understand some important truths. First, he starts off by revealing that, hey, there have been some branches that have been broken off. This is speaking of the Jews who have rejected Jesus as their Messiah. So you have the olive tree and these branches, they've been broken off. And then Paul says that we Gentile believers, we're a wild olive tree, but yet we have been grafted in to the natural olive tree of the Jewish tree. And now we are partakers of the roots and fatness of the olive tree. So the Jews that have rejected Jesus, they've been broken off. Us Gentiles who have accepted Jesus, we've been grafted in. And even though we used to be the wild olive tree that you would never put into a a good olive tree, God says, you know what, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to do it and I'm going to make you bear good fruit, even though you normally wouldn't, you know, in the natural sense. But I'm going to graft you in. I'm going to make you a part of this. And this is something that is amazing that God has done for us. But as we hear this, Paul wants us to understand something. He wants to make clear, you better not be prideful about this. You better not boast about that. Oh, yeah, look at us. We're the ones who have been grafted in. And guess what? You guys have been broken off. You know, and so Paul's saying, don't look at them, the nation of Israel, and start getting prideful and boasting about look at us versus look at you. Stay humble and remember that we do not support the root of the olive tree, but the root supports us. You know, something we need to remember as Christians is that everything we believe is rooted in the nation of Israel. It's rooted in the fact that God called Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that the nation of Israel was given the law, that ultimately through the nation of Israel came the Messiah. Jesus was Jewish. Almost every author of the Bible was Jewish. All the apostles were Jewish. Uh, So as Christians, we have been greatly blessed by the nation of Israel and to have this kind of superiority of like, oh, look at us, we're so much better. Paul is warning against that. Be careful not to get prideful. And the only reason we have our present status versus theirs is because we placed our faith in Jesus and they haven't. So it's not because, oh, look at us, we did so many good works that God said, forget you, Israel, I'm pulling you out and I'm putting the Gentiles in. No, we just placed our faith in Jesus and they didn't. And so Paul's saying, there's no you know, room for boasting here and thinking that you're better, which unfortunately through church history, Gentiles have done. And oh, look at now, you know, God's done with you. We're, we're the ones that God really loved now. We're the chosen people. You're the rejected people. And, and Paul's warning against that kind of thinking. Now, the most important part about this illustration is in verses 23 and 24. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Paul wants us to understand something. If God is able to take us, who are the wild branches, and graft us in to the olive tree, then and do that amazing work in us and save us, then why would it be hard for him to take those that he broke off that are natural branches and put them back on? 
If he can put wild branches in there and graft them in, it is not going to be difficult for God to take those that he's already broken off and say, all right, now I'm going to put you right back onto the tree because you are natural branches. And so just because they've been broken off, Paul wants us to know that we shouldn't think, well, there's no more hope for them. There is. There's a future hope. And Paul wants us through this illustration to see that God can do this for the Jews in the future. Just like he grafted us in, it'll be real easy for him to take them and put the natural branches right back on, just like he took them off. And now Paul's going to reveal what God is actually going to do in the future. He says, look at how God could do it. Now he's going to tell us what God is going to do. And he shares with us an important mystery, verses 25 to 27. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it's written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will return away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Paul says, I want you guys not to be ignorant of a certain mystery that I'm going to to share with you. Well, what's the mystery? That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and then all Israel will be saved. Now, we already looked at the fact that God has blinded Israel as a judgment. But notice now that Paul makes something very clear. He says, blindness in part has happened in Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles. In part and until are both speaking of the fact that this is temporary. This isn't permanent, that in the future this is going to change. So right now, yes, there is a blindness among the nation of Israel as a judgment to their rejection of Jesus, but that's not always going to be the case. The blindness that Israel has right now is temporary. It's only until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Right now, as you look at, you know, kind of the, the biblical timeline, you see, you know, starting off in Abraham, God's focus is on the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel, all the way to the time of Christ, and then the rejection of Jesus by the Jews, we see the, the time of the church. And for the most part, it's a time of Gentiles being saved. And so we are living right now presently in the church history mindset of things in the time of the Gentiles, where God's focus is mainly on saving Gentiles. Because as we noted, Jews for the most part have rejected Christ. So the majority of them aren't coming to saving faith, but Gentiles are. And so we're, we're living in the time of the Gentiles, but we're told when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, God's going to shift his focus back to Israel. So it was on Israel, it was on Israel, boom. Now it's on the church, and in the future, it's going to be on Israel again. But we're spoke of here of the fullness, so when the time of the Gentiles is complete. And this is really speaking of, there's going to come a point in time where the number of the Gentiles who get saved is going to be ending. So one Gentile is finally going to accept Christ, and at that moment, the fullness of the Gentiles is going to be done, and the Lord is going to return for his church and then his focus, once again, is going to go to the nation of Israel. But here's the great thing about it all, is when his focus goes back to the nation of Israel, notice what we're told, all Israel will be saved. Now, let's make sure we understand what that is saying. Um, 
It's speaking of Israel as a whole. When it says all Israel, Israel as a whole. Uh, this is a reoccurring expression in Jewish literature. It does not mean every Jew without exception. Uh, it's speaking as, as the nation as a whole, the majority will be saved. It's not saying that every single Jew is going to you know, put their trust in Jesus. Right now, the minority of Jews have put their trust in Jesus and the majority have rejected him. And Paul's saying, well, there's going to be a time that comes after the, the Gentiles have been raptured up, that God's going to put his focus back on the nation of Israel. And the majority at that time are going to recognize Jesus as the Messiah and accept him and receive salvation. There'll still be some that don't, but as a whole, the nation of Israel will be saved because the majority will accept that. And this is a wonderful thing that was prophesied. And that's why Paul once again quotes from the Old Testament, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob for this, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Paul's quoting from Isaiah 59, 20 and 21, where God says, hey, I'm going to send my deliverer, speaking of Jesus Christ, who's going to take ungodliness away from Israel. And God is doing this because his covenant with the Israelites is to take away their sins. And he hasn't fulfilled that yet. And so he's saying there's still promises, there's still things that I'm going to do in the future, but I'm going to be faithful to fulfill that promise. Paul goes on to say in verse 28 and 29, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. You know, right now the nation of Israel is rejecting the gospel, but they are still God's chosen people who he has made promises to. And Paul wants us to know the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. What God has said he will do, he's going to accomplish. The promises that he made to the nation of Israel, he's going to fulfill. So let's not stand back and say, well, just because they're rejecting presently, that must mean that God is done. No, God still has a plan. God's promises will be fulfilled. And Paul, speaking of, there's going to be a future event in which these things happen and we can trust that God will be someone who keeps his promises. And once again, as I started at the beginning, this should encourage us because God, if he rejects Israel and doesn't fulfill his promises to them, that's not good for us because then we have to wonder, well, will he do that for us? But the good thing is, no, God is going to complete the work that he started. God is going to fulfill his promises to the nation of Israel, just like he says with us, I will complete the work that I started in you and I will keep the promises that I've given to you. And so this should bring us confidence of the God that we serve, that just like he's going to do this for Israel, he'll continue to do that for us as well. Verse 30. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed to them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. The Gentile Christians came from disobedience, yet God showed them mercy in part through the disobedience of Israel. And if God can use Israel's disobedience to help bring more Gentiles to salvation, he can definitely use the mercy that he has shown to the Gentiles to show mercy also to the nation of Israel because ultimately all of us are disobedient. All of us need the mercy of God and we're in that same boat. So the fifth important thing that Paul shares with us concerning Israel, ultimately asking, asking the question, you know, is there any hope for them in the future? Will they ever accept the Messiah in the future? He says this, 
When the time of the Gentiles is done, God is going to restore Israel as the nation as a whole will accept Jesus as their Messiah. So God is definitely not done with Israel. In the present, God's mainly reaching out to Gentiles who are receiving him. But in the future, as he receives the Gentile church to himself, his focus will go back on the nation of Israel. And we're going to see a majority of the nation of Israel accept Jesus as their Messiah. Well, this leads to the final question that Paul is going to answer in this chapter. Why would God do all this? I mean, this is like an elaborate plan of things of here's a rejection of the Messiah and God used that to bring Gentiles to salvation and he's using that salvation to provoke Jews to jealousy and ultimately he's going to come and put his focus back on the Jews and most of them are going to accept Jesus and it's kind of like, wow, this is kind of mind-boggling. Why would God do all this? Well, Paul answers that question for us. It might not be the answer you want to hear, but it's a good one. Verse 33, Oh, the depths of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him? And it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. You're thinking, oh, I want to hear a really good answer of why God does what he does and you know what, what motivates him in this. But, but notice Paul's answer is really just, it's beyond our comprehension. I can't even sit here and tell you the whys of God because we can't really grasp the whys of God. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And then Paul asks three questions to help us see why what God does is really beyond our comprehension to fully grasp. And so we're just kind of, you know, why do we try so hard to to grasp something that we can't fully understand? For who has known the mind of the Lord? Paul starts off with this first question, you know, who knows what God knows? Well, well, nobody does. Uh, That's his first thing. Well, who has become God's counselor? Who is wise enough to tell God what to do? No one's wise enough to tell God what to do. Uh, And then, you know, or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? Who has done God such a great favor that now God owes them? Well, Well, nobody has. And so the point of all of these questions is, hey, we are incapable of really grasping this because God is just so far beyond us in his wisdom, his knowledge, his actions. As we're told, hey, his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And we just need to come to grips with that. There are certain things that we're just not going to fully understand about why God does things. But yet I love how Paul ends it. It doesn't really matter. We should still worship him. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. I mean, the bottom line is God deserves glory and praise, and we might not understand why he does all that he does, but at the bottom line, we should be grateful for what he does, grateful for who he is, and not worry about the fact that we can't fully grasp everything. And if we could fully grasp everything about God, that would kind of really be a bummer because God wouldn't be, you know, much of a God if we could fully grasp him. And so God, you know, Paul's just saying, hey, You're just going to have to accept there are things that you're not going to fully get, but worship the God that deserves all glory forever. The sixth important thing that Paul shares with us concerning Israel is the reason God will restore the nation of Israel is based on his unsearchable wisdom, knowledge, and ways. So this chapter makes very clear something to us. God 
is not done with the nation of Israel. He has not rejected them. Yes, right now, the focus of God is on Gentiles, the church age. He's wanting to see Gentiles get saved. But the fullness of the Gentiles is going to come. And I believe that we're living close to the end of that. And then the focus of God is, all right, now, Israel, it's time for us to have that relationship again. It's time for me to remove those blinders. It's time for you to come to this place where you are going to once again accept me, follow me, and believe in the one that I sent for you. So this chapter reveals to us some important things about God. He completes what he starts. He fulfills his promises. And hopefully that encourages us as we look at how he's worked in the past in the nation of Israel, where we are encouraged by that, how he's working in the present as we look at our own lives, but also how he's going to move in the future and realize God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We can trust him. He completes what he says he will do.